0: This reading this evening will be from Romans chapter 1 verses 16 through 24 Romans chapter 1 verse 16 through 24 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who surpass the truth in righteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things; therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their, to dishonor their bodies among themselves.
1: All right, church. Good evening. Are you ready? I've asked you guys this before. I'm pretty sure, but. Um, how many of you grew up in the Churches of Christ? A good majority? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm a. My, my mom and dad were converted when my brother was four and I was two. So I consider myself to grow up in the church. And um, we're going to begin a new series of teaching starting tonight. It's going to be all the month of July and the month of August. Um, and what we're going to do is dive into... A particular part of the teaching that is very very familiar in the churches of Christ that is very much a part of our history our heritage Um, it's the steps of salvation how many of you heard of that come on come on how many are there how many steps five you want to try them together let's see if we can do them you ready huh I can't what here Wrong. You all are so wrong. I can't believe you didn't know this. That was kind of a trick question. Sorry about that. Walter Scott was his name. He was a late 17th century, 18th century. um, I'm sorry, an 18th century preacher who was one of the major leaders in the restoration movement in America. And he's the one that developed the five finger exercise where the five steps of salvation um, and he would go into towns as a, as a uh, preacher in about the 1820s to 1830s. At this time, they were still part of what was known as the Mahoning Baptist Convention or Association in Pennsylvania before they um, broke out on their own. He and Alexander Campbell and others, uh, Barton Stone being one. And he would go into a town and he would find children playing where he was going to hold a gospel meeting or a revival meeting. And he would go to the children and he would have them hold their hands up and he would tell them the five steps of salvation like a mnemonic device, and then send them home to tell their parents to come back tonight to the local park or the church building to learn more about it. Now, do you know what the original five were? It comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where it was um, repent. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, faith, repent, baptism, remission of sins, and the Holy Spirit. Those were the original five from Walter Scott who invented the five-finger exercise. And um, as that became kind of popular, uh, that spread like wildfire where people were teaching the five-finger exercise, here's how you're saved, the five steps. And over time, um, uh, more systematic theology kind of uh, worked through the book of Acts and said, okay, what are the five maybe basic steps if we're going to keep it onto a finger? And if you let, heard Rene, Rene added a sixth one, right? Which, which is what? After baptism, we say... We ought to be faithful. Uh, So now we're like, "Ah, I got two hands, but that doesn't really work as well, Renee. So we just, you know, pretend like it's on one hand, I guess. Just kidding. Okay. We're going to talk about what's called the way of salvation. You know, every, first of all, globally, every religion has some version of salvation in it. Um, Whether they call it nirvana or they call it, you know, um, ecstasy or heaven or paradise Every major religion in the world has a version of what they call salvation. At the same time, every major religion in the world has a path to that salvation. It might be the four spiritual laws that you need to adhere to. It might be the five pillars of truth that you need to adhere to in these different world religions. Or in Christianity, it may be, as we've learned, the way to salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do... um, It's going to take seven weeks because we've got to set up the series tonight and then we've got to finish it with the idea of what faithfulness really means. And then we're going to talk about those five, the ones that you guys said. So uh, I was just teasing at the beginning. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and baptism. We're going to talk about those five and we're going to come back to those and try to teach those and do the work that many great men and women have done for the past two, three hundred years in our country and for the history of the church since the time of Pentecost, men and women have thought deeply about how does a person come into what the Bible calls salvation? How does that happen? And so I want to talk about that with you. So we're going to do that. Now, the most important thing that you can do when you're trying to get into figuring out or fixing what's wrong is the process of diagnosis. You know, actually figuring out what's wrong. Uh, Diagnosis always drives the treatment whether this is um, has to do with your house you know if you got a leak somewhere or you smell gas maybe um, diagnosis of the problem is going to quickly direct how you fix the problem this can be the same with your maybe car Uh, diagnosing the problem correctly will allow you to fix the problem correctly the same is true with your body your physical body I remember um, you know a couple months ago and I had appendicitis for about Uh, We had we had an event here a potluck for the families on a Friday night, and I was feeling great and um, I came home and this was just shortly after the issue in Lancaster and all of a sudden about 930 I started having cramps in my stomach and I started thinking if I had potato salad or not. I I just couldn't remember and then I drank um, uh, like uh, one of those insure kind of drinks and I couldn't, didn't know if that was the problem. And then the whole Saturday, I was sure that I had the 24-hour flu. And if I would just throw up, then I would feel better. Are you like that? If you just finally get the, you feel better? And so about Saturday evening, I forced myself to throw up. I made myself. And I thought, you know, you throw up, at least have an hour of relief, and you can lay there, and it didn't work. My diagnosis was wrong, and so the remedy didn't help me. It wasn't until Google told me that I had appendicitis that I then the next morning went and the proper diagnosis gave me the proper remedy. Okay, why is that important? How you diagnose your problem, the problem within you, that's within all of us, is going to determine how you seek a solution. Now, growing up in a church pew is a blessing. So we've got... I, I saw a lot of hands of people that grew up in church pews. And you might be wondering, why should we talk about you know, a doctrine like salvation amongst people who have done this long ago, right? Well, we'll get into that in just a moment. But growing up in a church pew is a really great blessing. It ingrains into young people a moral compass that even if for a period of time they forget that moral compass, they, they still have it and they can come back to that quickly. And it develops a beautiful character in people and young people as they grow up in the church building, but there's a unique challenge, a very unique challenge. It's called intergenerational conversion, meaning mom and dad are Christians. How do we ensure that our next generation becomes Christians? And one of the things that happens in intergenerational conversion, sorry to make that such a long word, but you know what I mean, is assumption of the gospel. An assumption of understanding the doctrine of sin and the personal work of Jesus Christ. We just kind of assume that they sit there and they're going to get it, just, you know, sitting in enough Bible classes and hearing enough sermons. It's just going to kind of float in and they'll figure it out. And then sooner or later, they'll just become Christians, right? Okay, the unique challenge is that we oftentimes fail to help young people who grow up in the pews accurately diagnose the problem. And then if they don't accurately diagnose the problem, then oftentimes we don't give them the right cure, the right remedy. And so usually the the presence of good morals in young people, we see them maybe having character growing up in the church, even maybe participating in church activities before even maybe they become Christians, sometimes presents a challenge for us to dig into the root of the problem that we all have, and that is our sin. And so... When the diagnosis is wrong, like I said, our remedy is also going to be wrong. So, in our text tonight, Paul diagnoses the problem that every human being has. The problem. And then he reveals the remedy, and then he's going to tell us how to respond to that here in our text. So, let's get into the diagnosis. what I want you to do is hang with me through this because it's a little bit meaty. We're going to have to think. But on Sunday nights, I expect the crowd is ready to think deeply about Scripture. And so we're going to do some good work together. The diagnosis of our problem. What's our problem? Now, the quick answer, if I say, what's our problem? The quick answer is just sin, right? Sin is the problem of mankind. And Jesus Christ had to die for our sins. And our young people from the time that they're little learned that growing up. But in our text tonight, what Paul does for us is he digs deeper into the diagnosis. You see, when we say, hey, your problem is sin, that's like telling somebody, hey, I'm sick. Now, that's a true statement, right? Like like if I'm not feeling well and you say, hey, are you okay? No, I'm sick. If I say that I'm sick, that's a true statement. But that statement doesn't actually give me much direction on a diagnosis or a cure. Does that make sense? So, when I say, hey, I've got sin, that's like saying, hey, I'm sick. But we still got to do some work to understand what's caused us to be sick and what do we have to do to prevent being sick in the future. That's how we get into this answer. So, Paul's going to do that for us in this text. He says here in verse 18 that the wrath of God, now we're we'll explaining the wrath of God in just a moment, but the wrath of God is going to be revealed or is being revealed, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now the wording of this is important because what Paul says here is that it's all of the unrighteousness and all of the ungodliness. The word all is is hovering around that. And then he assumes in his wording that just all people participate in this. The word man there is mankind, everybody. So all of the ungodliness and all of the unrighteousness of everybody, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven presently now towards that. That's the problem. Ungodliness is not um, just not believing in God. Ungodliness is, is not atheism. What ungodliness is, is acting like God does not exist. You see, there are some people that may even profess a belief in God. They might say, intellectually, I've looked at the evidences, I am convinced that God exists, and so I believe in God, but not functionally live like they actually think God is present in our world and around us. That's what ungodliness means. It means not to live towards God as if He's near us and around us. And so out of ungodliness, that causes what the Bible calls unrighteousness, which is like saying injustice or evil. Unrighteousness is that which is in us that makes us either do harm to other people in some way, shape, or form, or withhold the good that we ought to do. It's both of those. It is both the harm that we cause to people in this world and the good that we ought to do that we withhold from doing. That's unrighteous. We're not being Righteous, what God has called us to be. That's what unrighteousness is. But here's what Paul does for us. He tells us that ungodliness and unrighteousness is what brings upon the wrath of God. Sounds like a problem. But he explains why we are ungodly and unrighteous. I told you the diagnosis was going to be deep. Here's where Paul explains the problem that is underneath the problem. Okay, The problem is we're ungodly and unrighteous. And that deserves the wrath of God, but what's the problem underneath the problem that's stirring all that? Stirring all that. Now listen to what he says in verse uh, uh, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness here's our problem. Suppress the truth there's two things that Paul's going to reveal. First in verse 18 and second in verse 24, maybe 26. Let me check. Uh, It's verse 25. Verse 18 and verse 25 tell us two things. That we suppress what is true and then we exchange what is true. Let's dig into this. So, first of all, let's start with suppress. When Paul is saying here the word truth, or the truth in this context, what he's talking about is a knowledge of God. Who God really is and what is real about Him, what is accurate about Him. And so what he says that all mankind is guilty of, every one of us, even the man behind the microphone, what we're all guilty of is suppressing, holding down what we know to be true about who God is. That's the core problem. And so this space... That happens when we press down and suppress the truth. This space is what is created. I'm sorry, the space for sin, I should say it this way. The space for sin in our lives is created when we suppress in our minds what is true about God. There's several commentators of, in, in the book of Romans that say what Paul is doing here is rewording and recapitulating, you might say, Genesis chapter 3. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, what happened with Adam and Eve and Satan? What happened there was Satan came to Eve and caused her to suppress what she knew to be true about God. And in the space that was created in her life, when she held down what she knew to be true about God, in that space came the presence of acting in sin. You see, what Satan does is he helps you create that space. His work is just to nudge you to suppress what you know to be true about God. And leave you to fill it in with a replacement that is not God. That's really what sin is. To live out your life in a way that you were not designed to live your life. To live seeking life and joy and pleasure and peace outside of God. Suppressing what you know to be true about God and then running from Him. That's sin. That's lawlessness. You're going against the law of how you were designed to live. Suppressing the truth. You see, Paul actually says something really interesting in verses 19 to 23 about our knowledge of God. It's kind of complex, but I think you can see it. The first thing he says is that we can know God. You can know God. He says that His divine attributes, His nature, is clearly seen by the things that are made. You can know God. That's why belief in God is not the minority in the world Across the world, there is belief in God all over the place. Atheism is an incredibly small minority in the world. Because as people look at the created world, Paul gives us both the cosmological and the teleological argument, which are just basically that that this world has a first cause. Somebody had to cause this world. And the second argument is that this world makes sense, that there's purpose in this world, that things kind of dial together, that there's such precision for there to be life, that somebody if some mind had to make this, so we can know God. But then he says in verse 21 that we already do know God. Later in Romans, he would say that the law of God is already written on our hearts. This is what causes all mankind to stir when we see things like injustice or things like lying or things like um, cheating or things like, even, even things like plagiarism. Why is that a problem? Because there's within us, written on our hearts, the law of who God is. We're created in His image. So he says you can know God, you do know God, but he says you don't really know God because you've suppressed the truth. You've exchanged it. You've missed it. And so when we suppress the truth about who God is, that's when we begin to sin. Let me try to explain how this functionally works in your life, okay? Here's what it looks like to suppress what is true about God. You see, when you have an inordinate amount of worry or fear, when, when, you know, the Bible says, you know Jesus said, don't worry. Uh, the Bible says that we ought not to be people that have incredible amounts of fear about things. When you have an inordinate amount of worry or fear, what the Bible would say, you're not designed to live that way, that's sin. What you're doing is suppressing the truth of God's sovereignty and His goodness. Why do you worry and fear if you have a God that is sovereign and good? You see what I mean? Let me give you another example. If you struggle with the sin of greed or maybe stealing, you know what motivates greed and stealing? Suppressing the truth that God always provides for His people. You won't ever feel the need to have greed, you know, to over, too much, or you won't ever have the need to steal if you have a deep belief in the truth that God provides. You know the verse Hebrews thirteen five, where Jesus said, or, um, in, in there is quoting that God will, I will never leave you or never forsake you. You guys know that verse? It's talking about money. It says, don't worry about money. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's the context of that verse. Let me give you another example. If you struggle, let's say, fornication or adultery. Let's say, sex outside of marriage before you're married or sex outside of your marriage if you are married. Why do you do that? Because in that moment, even if you're not satisfied, you're suppressing the truth that God is your ultimate satisfaction and that He can give you everything you need. That's why it happens. Lying. You're suppressing the truth that God's approval is all you really need. That's why you lie. You lie to people so that they won't be upset with you. You lie to people so that they will approve of you, so they'll like you. And we lie... Because we suppress the truth that God's approval of me is all that really matters. What he thinks of me. Malice towards someone else is suppressing the truth that God is the ultimate judge who will render the due punishment. So I don't need to have malice towards you. God will take care of that. How about bitterness? Struggle with bitterness. Bitterness is suppressing the truth of God's unending mercy and forgiveness towards you. At that moment, when you have bitterness towards somebody else, you are in that moment suppressing the reality of the world that God has had an unending amount of mercy and forgiveness towards you. That allows you to be bitter towards somebody, right? Okay, let me give you one more. Rebellion. How about just natural rebellion, right? Uh, This happens a lot of times when we're young. We just kind of want to rebel and go do our own thing. What causes rebellion? Rebellion is the suppressing of the truth that God has your highest good in His will. You would never run if you actually believe that God has your highest, most beneficial good in His mind. Even your suffering, even your struggles, that it's for your highest good. The moment you believe that God has your highest good in His will, you'll stop being rebellious. Does that make sense? Am I making sense what it means to suppress the truth? This is the core of our problem. Every sin is pursued because truth about God is being suppressed and we are guilty. You know, that's why in heaven there will be no sin. Because the fullness of who God really is will be so present in our lives that we won't need to suppress what's true about him and run. We'll see everything we've ever needed and have him there. Okay, so the problem with sin, the problem with this sin, is that sin is not just a lifeless pleasure that you dabble in and then let go of. Sin is not like going to Kings Island and you buy a ticket, you walk into the park and you say, you know what? I'm in control over deciding which ride I'm going to ride and how much fun I want to have. And when I'm done having fun with these rides in this park, I'm going to get back in my car and go home. I'm done with sin. That's not how sin works. Not at all. In fact, sin is incredibly powerful. The Bible actually portrays sin as a living thing. James says after we have desire and we have conception, he says it gives birth to sin. Sin has life in it. And sin wants more than just a rendezvous with you. Sin wants your life in exchange. So when you partake in sin, sin is going to demand a payment. Later in Romans chapter 6, Paul would say that the payment or the wages of sin... You know, you dabble in sin, sin has a wage, a payment. Hey, I want my payment, I want my wages. You know what your wages are for sin? Death. Death. Sin literally wants your life. So how does it do that, right? If all I want to do is just maybe dabble in some rebellion or a little bit of sin, I want to indulge in something, and it's not like going to Kings Island and just riding a few rides and going home, how does sin take my life? How does it become my master, where I become its slave and I can't escape? How does that happen? Well, that's what Paul explains in the second part in verse 25. When he says, after that we suppress or hold down what's true about God in our own minds, verse 25 he says this, they exchange the truth about God. You see, the reality of God is not something that you can erase. You're not powerful enough. You and I are not big enough. And so if you hold down what's true about God long enough, here's what you'll do. You'll finally exchange what's true about God. Take it away from God. You'll stop attributing to God His goodness, His sovereignty, His leadership, His His love for us. And you'll attribute the divine natures of God to some created thing. You'll exchange it. And the moment you do that with sin, sin no longer is something you dabble in. Sin now has become your master, your God. You are looking to something created, something from God, not God, to give you everything God was supposed to give you, and it can't do that, and it controls you, and it masters your life. What we end up doing is putting on to created things demands only a creator can give us. There's a man by the name of Ernest Becker who wrote a book, it was, Pulitzer Prize winning book in 1974 called The Denial of Death. And he actually was an agnostic. He claimed to be, just didn't think that you could really know much about if God existed. But one of the things he wrote about in this book called The Denial of Death was that uh, as our culture in 1974 continues to eliminate or suppress the reality of God in their life, they will then transfer the need they have for a God onto something else. And in 1974, he was prophetic almost in this. He said, what our nation will most likely do is transfer the divine Messiah need of God, you know, Savior need, to the romantic relationship. In our culture, the, one of the biggest things that we use for God when it's not God is the lover, the spouse, the, the one we're dating, the one we're with. The pressure we put on that person to be God for us. Isn't it interesting that how many love songs today, you know, any of you, maybe like 50, 60, 70 years old, remember love songs when you were maybe going to the sock hop? Sound a lot different, right, Anna? Sorry. <laughs> they sound a lot different today than they did then, right? I mean, you listen to songs um, like Bruno Mars talks about being locked out of heaven. True. Um, John Legend, you know John Legend? He sings that, so he's from Springfield, Ohio, a beautiful musician. He sings a song called All of Me Loves All of You. All of your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I give you all of me, and give me all. He's speaking of a divine covenant when he's talking about love. Isn't that interesting? That we've transferred the fullness of the need of our heart from God to other things. Mainly in our culture, the... love relationship and how many husbands and wives live in frustration because they have an expectation of the divine on their spouse and that spouse will never be divine to them can't be we're always frustrated and angry and upset about it why because we've exchanged what's true about God and put it on something created and that's unfair and we can't enjoy any gifts from that person because we need that person to be God it's not possible isn't it interesting that we also have wrapped up our identity in our life and things like our career? That's the next big idol in our culture. Who you are, right? Like, that's the second question when you meet somebody is like, what's your name and what do you do? You ever felt the twinge of not being super proud of what you do? But why is that? Because we've exchanged what's true about God who gives us identity, child, beloved, worthy. And we've attached that to career, what I do. Interesting, right? Okay. Isn't it interesting, the unbelievable kind of things people will do for money? Bernie Madoff? We look at that, why would somebody do that for money? Well, the chase of the money became God to him. He had to do it to give himself life. He exchanged that. And so when we're in this cycle of suppressing what is true about God, which then leads us to find life outside of God because we're not believing and agreeing with what's true about Him, then the things in our life, which are typically good things, like a spouse or a career or our children, we put the weight of God on them to say, give me what only God can give me. And we live in fear and worry and anxiety and frustration and bitterness because the things in our life are not delivering because they're not God. That's the problem. And that's really what the cycle of exchange, or suppressing and exchanging the truth. And he says, through that unrighteousness that we do, we merit God's wrath. And let's talk about God's wrath quickly. What is God's wrath? What do you think about? I always think of, you know, like the fire-breathing dragon, God's wrath. You know, the, the, the here it comes, the punishment, the torture, the pain. But his wrath, it's interesting the moment Paul opens up this section of scripture about the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he then immediately says, The wrath of God is revealed. I think there's something for us to learn about teaching the gospel, especially to young people, is the very first breath out of his mouth after he says the gospel is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is in this moment here. Um, being, being presented in Romans chapter 1, pardon me, verse 18, as a present active tense. Meaning, right now, from heaven, meaning it's inescapable, all of us experience the wrath of God. Now, what is the wrath of God exactly? What's he talking about? There's a phrase that's repeated three times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28 that explain really what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is God giving us up to what we're really wanting, letting us have what we're really wanting, letting us go where we really want to go. And in hopes that as we would experience life outside of him and see that it's not fulfilling, not satisfying, that that wrath that we would experience would then draw us back to him. The best place for us to see this is in both brothers in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son story. Both brothers experienced the wrath of God. The first one said, I can have more pleasure and more life and more fun if I can get away from my father and run to the far country. And the father, probably heartbroken, lets him go and gives him his inheritance and lets him go. He experienced the wrath of God. But the same is true for the older brother, right? See, the younger brother thought life was away from the father, but the older brother thought life was work in spite of the father. Where did the older brother want to get his reward from? His father or his work? His work. Nothing to do with the father, right? He wanted his reward from his work, not his father. You remember when his father came out and pled with him to come into the party? And he said, you wouldn't even give me a goat so that I can go and be with my friends. He said, my work was supposed to give me a party. And it didn't give me a party, and I'm disappointed. And he says, son, all that, I've had, all that I have is yours. He missed the father just as much as the, the wrath of God. And we see the wrath of God at the end of that story. We don't see a conclusion to it. But God let the older brother live where he wanted to be. And so, therefore, on the day of judgment, hell is simply God letting go for eternity those where they want to go. I believe I've said this before, but the Bible does not portray a picture of hell of people scratching at the gate trying to get out. It doesn't present that picture. In fact, the rich man Lazarus, that story in Luke 16 about a man who ends up in the Hadian realm in torment, is still in that world wanting to live like he was living in life. Hey, can you order that peasant poor guy around and tell him to come dip his tongue? He didn't ask out of there. He just wanted to continue to be in charge. That's what hell is. you finally getting for eternity what you really want, which is life away from God, which is no life at all. It's death. That's what it is. Okay, so our diagnosis is that we all suppress what is true about God and pursue life outside of Him. That's sin. In which God's wrath gives us up to that pursuit. But the pursuit of sin will become our master and take our life from us. So what's the solution? the diagnosis drives the solution re- the re- the remedy is in verse 16 where he says i'm not ashamed of the gospel of christ for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes jew first also the greek for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith we had three major problems we suppressed first of all the truth about god Now, if you look in the list of the things that we suppressed about God, it was His divine attributes and His power. You see, in nature, what we see about God is that we come from something bigger than ourselves and that there's something sustaining us that we don't sustain ourselves. Like, you had nothing to do with raising the sun up this morning. Nothing. You have nothing to do with appointing the stars and making the grass grow. Nothing to do with it, right? There's something outside of you that makes this world exist. And we suppress that. But in the gospel, God doesn't just reveal, again, His divine nature. In the life and the person of Jesus Christ, He reveals Himself to us, all of Himself. And He is a complex character. At the cross, we see the complexity come together. We see, as the Bible calls, God's righteousness. At the cross, God was both punishing all of sin and saving all of the sinners. God was doing both. Justice and mercy coming and colliding. Grace and judgment slamming together. In one event, God was doing both of those. He was the just judge punishing sin and the justifier of sinners saving them. He was both. And in the gospel, you see justice that you know is required, but you also see the love that you've always longed for. Somebody who would, like John Legend said, all of me loves all of you. You finally see that in the gospel. And so, even though we suppress the truth, Jesus is revealing a greater, more beautiful truth about who God is. That's the first answer. The second one is, we exchanged what was true about God and applied that to created things. Now, how does that solve us in the gospel? Well, the Son of God pre-existed this world. Before we were ever born, He existed. He was in glory in heaven. And Jesus willingly exchanged His glory And willingly became a servant, like a created being, and lived as a created being. Philippians 2 says that equality with God was not something Jesus was going to hold on to. He willingly exchanged his glory and let it go so that he could become a servant. John 17, as Jesus was praying before he left this earth, he said, God, would you please glorify me again with the glory that I had before the world ever was? You see, our exchanging of who God is and giving it to created things, Jesus said, I'll exchange my glory to bring you back. I'll become a servant for you. And the last one is God's wrath. We suppress the truth, we've exchanged the truth, and we deserve God's wrath. You see, God's wrath is described as Him giving us up. But in the gospel, we see God coming for us. While we were sinners, He came for us. So God's wrath gave us up, but in the gospel, He comes for us. For us, Jesus endured the ultimate wrath of God in the garden as He looked into what was ahead of Him. As the Bible says, when He prayed, let this cup pass from Me." You go back to the Old Testament, you see what cup meant was judgment. Jesus knew the bitter drink that He was about to drink of the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the ultimate letting go. He looked into eternity. Life without God for eternity. And he was in anguish and he was sweating drops of blood because he knew he had to endure, not that he deserved it, but he had to endure the punishment that you and I deserved. He went into that place and he paved a way back for us that we can come back. He experienced the ultimate wrath of God and was resurrected because, not because of anything else other than his perfect life, he brought it back for us. And now he gives that to us as a gift that you and I can put on as we put on Christ and be perfect in Him. So how do we respond to this? Well, Paul says we do two things. We believe it, meaning we believe the truth about the gospel, that it testifies to our sinfulness, that it testifies to what we deserve, and the gospel testifies to what God did for us out of His love and mercy. you got to believe that. But then he says you have to have faith. Belief and faith are different things. You've got to believe what's real about the gospel. But what faith is, is faith says, I trust that the work of Jesus Christ was enough for me, that it worked, that God accepted the sacrifice. I trust that it worked. And what we're going to see is that in each of these, we're going to to transition calling them steps and start calling them practices or the way because you don't stop confession. You don't stop repentance and, and you don't stop believing as you journey in the Christian life. But you learn to practice these things as you journey on your way to ultimate salvation with God. But you're going to see this, that faith, that trust in the work of Jesus Christ is the underlying principle of every step you take. You have to have faith when you believe. You have to have faith when you confess. You have to have faith when you repent. You have to have faith when you are baptized. Faith that says, I trust that the work of Jesus Christ was enough. That it worked. And I believe in what He has done for me. And has saved me. And has drawn me back from suppressing the truth. I don't have to hide from it anymore. Because what I've learned about God is enough. And it's great. That we don't have to exchange it anymore. We can take what He was as a servant And as a king, and we can see that he absorbed every ounce of God's wrath so that we can no longer be separate, but now together with God. Do you really trust that he did the work for you and that it was enough? Belief in the truth of the gospel and who God is and faith in the work of Jesus Christ will move you through the process of what the Bible calls salvation. And if right now is the time when you're on the verge of needing to discuss that, we're available for you. You can come as we stand and sing.